Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. So the light's on because after four weeks, for those who've been coming, you should have been singing along with that song. I mean, it should be stuck inside of your head like one of those annoying children's songs that um, perhaps uh, you've been exposed to. My, my daughter is singing one of them right now in her house, and my wife was like, I had trouble sleeping last night because that ridiculous song about grandma, my hand got crushed by a rock, is stuck inside my head. And we're like... What kind of song is that to begin with? Have you ever realized how creepy children's songs actually are? Have you ever thought about it? See, most of us, we just kind of take it for granted. It's like, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream, right? Uh, Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. I'm like, what's up with that? That's a little creepy. It's like life doesn't even exist. It's just a dream in a computer's head somewhere, right? Um, and so the idea that just like some of the ridiculousness of children's songs, actually, I think kind of ties in to what we're going to be doing this week. I love as humans, we just take things for granted and we just do things. And it normally takes you traveling outside of your own culture to realize that a lot of what we do um, isn't normal for other people. And that oftentimes when you travel into another culture, your tendency is to be like, that's so weird. And yet they think we're weird because of what we do. The word Thanksgiving this week is one of those kind of holidays that I think is a unique one. Um, What I love about it, probably because of my introverted nature, is the fact that so many families get together and there are people because of genetics sitting around that table that you know would never get together if only for the fact that they're kin to each other. Like uh, the fact that there are people forced around the table, Democrats, Republicans, independents, you've got everybody across the spectrum, the people you don't want to see, they're sitting across from you. Like Thanksgiving is one of those holidays where we're forced to lock eyes and have a conversation with someone that we would have to be paid to have coffee with at any other time during the rest of the year. And yet, in the same time this week, I think embedded in the very name of the holiday that we'll celebrate is is actually a really insightful posture for us to stay positive. That we've been in this series the entire month uh, wrapped around this idea of what does it look like to shift and to live our lives from that posture of positivity. Last week, I gave you a key to positivity. It's just an operating system, a way of approaching. And today, I want to kind of come alongside of that and give you another powerful uh, tool to stay positive, especially in a week where you're sitting around the table with people who maybe are the reason you feel negative sometimes. That maybe it's the teenager who's going to roll their eyes for the 17th time in the 17th minute of the meal because the macaroni and cheese is not the way they like or you didn't have what you need. And like you can feel the negativity starting to well up. This is a series that's meant to help that meal make it better because I doubt most of you have experienced the meal that is considered to be the most expensive Thanksgiving meal in America for a dinner of 12 at the old Homestead uh, Steakhouse in New York City. Uh, you pay $150,000, but you can have a fabulous dinner for 12. And this is what the turkey looks like for that dinner. That uh, It's gold because that is edible gold flakes. Because when you have a turkey, why not make it 
edible gold flakes encrusted. And you'll notice there's a Maserati tag sticking out because hidden inside the stuffing, because that won't cause anyone in the family to stab one another, is keys to a brand new Maserati. And so I don't think any of you are going to be at that mill this year. And if you are, please invite me. I will ditch my family to show up and have Thanksgiving with yours because that's incredible. But this idea of being positive, I actually want to take you to a letter written um, about 2,000 years ago. It was written by a man named Paul. And um, if you're new to the Christian world, Paul is one of the most famous, um, most uh, kind of influential thought leaders in early Christian history. Paul initially went by Saul. Um, he was kind of cool like Prince before Prince was even Prince. Um, so he went by Saul, and Saul was considered to be one of the most brilliant Jewish thinkers of his day. He was an up-and-coming guy. Um, he was mentored by one of the most famous rabbis in Jewish history, and this guy was his personal mentor. And so Saul had a really good thing going, and he was kind of zealous because Christianity originally birthed out of Judaism. It was this idea that uh, the central promise of Judaism, which was around this promised one of God, um, the, these group of Jewish people believed Jesus was that promised one, that he was the one who had come, and they'd been waiting on him for almost a thousand years. And this group that breaks off, that believes Jesus is in fact God, causes some tension in the early Jewish community of first century in the Roman Empire. And so Saul decides that he's going to stop this thing because it's, it's, it's causing a lot of division. So Saul literally takes it as his personal mission to go around getting them arrested. So any Jewish Christian was arrested. In fact, the first person killed for the Christian faith was done at the feet of Saul. Because he was that zealous for stopping Christianity. And then in the course of traveling from town to town to stop it out, his life is transformed. He becomes a Christian. And it's this radical, radical notion. It would be like learning an ISIS or uh, like bin Laden had all of a sudden become a New York firefighter. I mean, it's really that jarring of a transition. And here's Paul. And now he's traveling around speaking and teaching, but because he kicked off this thing called persecution against the Christians, he finds himself constantly being beat and thrown in prison. And the letter that we're about to look at is written after Paul spends four years in prison. He, he spends four years waiting a trial in front of the, the Roman Caesar, and he's eventually acquitted of the charges. But on his departure from the courthouse, um, one of his, um, one of his little mentees is there with him, a guy named Timothy. Timothy is someone that Paul has begun to kind of shepherd and guide and mentor in life. And Paul and Timothy begin to travel to all these churches that Paul had helped to start that he had not visited in over four years. And so Paul and Timothy are going around and they, they stop in a city called Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a global city. It was cosmopolitan. It was super influential. To give you a glimpse of how truly affluent and influential Ephesus was, is here we are 2,000 years removed from the letter that's about to be read. And Ephesus at the time had running water in the homes of the people there, both hot and cold running water. And on top of that, they had in-house heating systems. 2,000 years ago, this city was so technologically advanced and so 
like just infrastructurally wealthy, that they had running water in their homes on the hillsides with in-house heat. Like it's extraordinary. And so Paul and Timothy arrive in Ephesus and Paul hears of kind of an emergency in Macedonia, which is a kind of modern day Greece. And so he travels to modern day Greece and he tells um, Timothy, stay in Ephesus, which is uh, in modern day Turkey. And so Timothy stays in this really large city and he's the interim leader as a young 30 year old responsible for one of the most affluent and one of the most fractured churches that Paul has started. There's, there's infighting, there's backbiting. It sounds a lot like Thanksgiving at some of your homes, right? There's a lot of people not getting along and Timothy is responsible to lead them. And if you were to read through Paul's letter to Timothy that we now call 1 Timothy because Paul would actually end up writing two letters um, over the course of their interactions. The first letter to Timothy begins with a call for Timothy to be brave and bold because Timothy is struggling with a lot of insecurity. He's overwhelmed with the leadership struggle. He's trying to navigate all these different groups. He's not Paul. He's not trilingual. He's not brilliant. Paul was considerably, without a doubt, a true genius from an IQ standpoint. One of the best thinkers in the ancient Roman Empire. And Timothy's like, I'm none of those things. I'm a 30-year-old who's been spending time with Paul, trying to figure out what this thing is, and then Paul puts me in charge of this crazy group of people, and then he leaves. And then Paul writes a letter because he's not getting back fast enough, and he's like, Timothy, I want you to be bold. I want you to be brave. And he begins to walk through what we now would break into six different chapters, a series of instructions and kind of guidance and all of these different kind of development tools. And he gets to chapter six and he begins chapter six, these few verses that I want to dig into this morning with a call, with a a word that is a strong word. And initially when you read this, you can say, why, why is Paul being so kind of powerful in these sentences. And it's because he's talking to a kid who needs, who needs to be reminded that he's, he is the leader. We've all been in moments and places and situations where you're responsible for something. Maybe it was the first time you came home as a parent and uh, you know, you're at the hospital and they hand the baby to you and you're like, well, hold up. You're not, you're not going home with me. I have to, I have to take this home. And all of a sudden you feel the weight of her. Maybe it's the first time you were given a team of people. Maybe it's the first time you walked into a room and maybe you're a doctor or a lawyer and you realize, oh my goodness, this person is putting like their future on me. Or now you're the person who's got to hire or fire someone. And you're going to be the reason their family loves you or their family kind of gripes and complains about you around the dinner table. And this is where Timothy is. He's overwhelmed. And so Paul, knowing he's about to give one of the kind of the hardest of his directions, says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, these words, command. 
That first word command is a military term. It means move out. It means this is what we're doing. This is life or death, charge the hill. This is a heavy, heavy phrase that Paul leads out with because Paul knows what he's about to say is going to be a really hard thing for Timothy to swallow because of all the groups in the Ephesus, there is one group that has more power than any group. And it's those people who live up on the hillside with running water in their house with in-house heat. It's the wealthy. And he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. You can see why Paul uses this word command with Timothy. Because this is a hard thing that he's asking Timothy to do. And maybe even as I'm reading it, you're probably like, yeah, yeah, Paul, stick it to that 1%. Tell them. Because they need to be told. That 1% has too much power and they're, they're holding us all back and we really need to give it to them. The challenge with this passage written almost 2,000 years ago is the fact that many of us would self-exempt out of this command because we would say, I don't feel rich. I'm not rich. But see, rich is relative, isn't it? Rich is a really, really relative term. Rich is usually how we compare ourselves to those around us. And if you've ever noticed, most of us use a comparison tool that is one way. We only compare ourselves to people above us on the socioeconomic ladder. And so, of course, we're not rich because look what they have. I don't have a private jet. I don't have that size house. I don't have that kind of bank account. Because we look at the people above us and we're like, well, we're not like that. We go through our shopping centers and we don't have a car that's that nice. And yet, the reality is, is that if you're going to use comparison to draw your definition of rich, I think you have to compare both ways. You have to look up and you have to look down. And statistically speaking, if you make more than $33,000 a year, you're actually in the top 1% of the world. And it, we're probably not as excited about sticking it to that 1%. But the reality is, is that if you make more than $33,000, you are in the top 1%. I've been able to travel and spend extensive time in third world countries doing different kind of humanitarian aid and mission work. And once you get out of the bubble that you live in, you realize how truly difficult life is for so many people around the world. How truly people live hand to mouth. And when you look across a family who has nothing and you're inside of a hut in some third world country and they're offering you tea, it it does something on the inside of you. Because you realize, oh my goodness, I really am rich. I may, I may not feel rich because most of the time, you probably only felt rich a few times your entire life. Richness is normally a, a feeling that we get when we have margin. Most of us don't live with margin in our life. The time that you did, it was probably like when you got your first paycheck, whether you were a babysitter and you got that $60 check or $40 check or that first time you had that job and someone gave you a check and you had no responsibility, nothing was on, kind of like nobody was claiming that money and you walk out and you're like, I'm going to buy me something because I got money today. I see this with my daughter. 
I mean, you give that girl a five or ten dollar bill and she's waving it around like she's like in charge of the world because she has no responsibility, no role. There is no one asking for that five or ten. And so it's just straight margin. She's like, where are we going to go today, Daddy? I want to I spend this money. I'm like, oh, sweet girl, that $5 didn't even get you a hamburger. Like, I'm sorry to bust your little bubble. She's like, I got a $10 Target gift card. We're going to go to Target. And I'm like, you're not going to get very far at Target with $10. But she feels rich right now because she's got margin. And so just to kind of include us in what Paul is Unpacking here to Timothy, we are all included in the midst of this advice. And to exempt ourselves from this and what he's about to say actually exempts us from experiencing a level of positivity that most of us deep down inside hunger for. And so Paul continues, he says, I want to command them to do something. But before I command them to do something, I want to warn them about something else. He says, I want to warn you against arrogance and misplaced hope. Because arrogance and misplaced hope are the two ditches that come when you operate in a place of having more than you need for your basic necessities. In the ancient world, with, with especially the wealth, there was no idea of government welfare state. That's a very modern idea. The Roman Empire, if you were poor and you had no basic necessities, there was no government programs. You died if no one helped you. And so what would happen in this context, and still happens in our context, is there's two ditches. One is you begin to place your hope in your money, because that is your hope. And the other is that you begin to live entitled with a sense of arrogance, because you've earned it, you've done it, you've arrived, you've worked hard. And those two ditches are dangerous places to live, because both are about putting and placing hope in money, which Paul even says right before he transitions to the command, which is so uncertain. Our culture understands this. Our, in fact, um, one of the ways that we punish people in our society is through cash fines. Right? No one shows up at your house and takes your food from you. No one takes your clothing from you when you're punished. They charge you money. Or they take your time, our two most valuable resources. In fact, I, when my wife and I went had our 10-year anniversary, I, um, this is how good the system is. Right? Um, on our 10-year anniversary, uh, we were in um, California doing a national park tour. And I'd rented a Prius because we were trying to save money. And, um, and so we're traveling from one national park to the other, and we're cutting through the Mojave Desert, which is flat as can be. And if you ever drive through the Mojave at night, a city or a town that's like 50 miles away just looks like it's right there. And so it's really late at night. We're driving, and you know, we just, we're just talking. I'm not even paying attention to anything. It's just flat and boring. And, um, and all of a sudden, I notice the blue lights behind me. And I'm like, oh, he must be, he's about to get somebody. Good for him, right? So I pull over, and it, he pulls over. And I'm like, I think that's me. And so I pull over to the side of the road, and I have no clue why he's pulled me. And he walks up, and he's like, sir, um, why are you doing 80, two miles per hour? And I was like, Dude, this is a Prius. There's no way this thing was doing 82 months. Like, come on. He's like, sir, you were really speeding. And I was like, really? I'm like, you're not joking with me. 
He's like, yes, speed limit was 55 miles per hour. You're going to 82. And I was like, oh, oh man, happy anniversary, right? And um, so he goes back, and I'm just hoping this guy is like, looking at my license, realizing I'm in the out of state. And he comes back and he's like, here you go. You know, make sure you drive the speed limit. And he hands me a speeding ticket and I about like just fell out the car. Because that speeding ticket was more expensive than every single night of the hotel combined for the rest of our trip. The most expensive thing that we did on our anniversary was pay a speeding ticket. I'm not joking. It, it costs more than my flight. But you know what? I've never, I have, I don't speed if I'm in California anymore. It worked. I don't want to speed, period, because it was such a deep punishment. Why? Because there's something about money, because our tendency is to drift into a place where we put our hope in what we have. And what that does is it fosters a mindset of scarcity. When your hope is in what you have, then when you do not have it, your hope is not there anymore. If you can click on a website and see a number and that is your hope, then your hope will rise and fall on what that website shows you. And it's a terrifying, hopeless place to live. There's not a firm foundation in that. It's flaky. And it can change drastically. I mean, some of you are still, still remember when the financial crisis and the late first decade of 2000s hit and the way it impacted your life. And you did nothing and it just happened to you. And Paul's like, look, it's so uncertain. Do not put your hope in that. Instead, put your hope in something else. He contrasts the scarcity mindset because the world is a small pie and you've got to protect your pie because if anything takes from your pie, then it means your hope drops a little bit. Your security falls with that slice being removed. But then he contrasts it with this one. He says, but to put their hope in God, and then he puts this statement, which who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He's like, look, I want you to put your hope in the right place, in a better place, in a more secure place. He's like, I want you to have this posture to see that the God who is your hope provides everything for your enjoyment. And he even uses the word richly provides, which seems a little like over the top. He's like, Paul, are you sure he richly provides everything for our enjoyment? And you have to realize that was central to the Judeo-Christian worldview, central to what would have happened if you'd grown up in a Jewish household or if you'd have grown up in that Christian doctrine of what Paul's life had been shaped by. One of the central core kind of postures that comes out of that Judeo-Christian frame is gratitude. It's a posture of gratitude. It's, it's embedded everywhere in the Jewish, the Judeo-Christian faith system. It's, it's central in fact, every time you would eat a meal, you would say a prayer of thanksgiving. You would say, God, thank you for this food, which is a small but significant thing. If every time you sit down to eat a meal, before you jump into it, you're reminded to pause and to thank the one who richly provided it. And you can say, well, load it at a time out. God didn't provide that. My paycheck provided that. Well, how did you get that job? 
Well, because I worked really hard and I'm smart. Well, who gave you those brains? Look, reality is, even if you don't believe in God, none of us can take full credit for where we are and what we have. None of us. Because even if you remove God from the equation, I'll go down that logic train with you. Then that means that evolution or random chance gave you the brain that gave you the potential, that gave you the ability to be that smart, to have those many neurons, to get those grades and to understand those concepts. And then random chance happened to let you be birthed in that home at that time for that season. Like, we all come into a world with nothing. And as, as maybe uncomfortable it is, because I don't want to take away from your hard work, but the reality is, is that we all started from, with a head start. We were all pushed up a little bit. And we were given things that none of us can take credit for. And everything that we have done has been simply to do with what we were already given. And so Paul's pushback is like, look, he's provided everything. And so even, even if you're not sure there's a God, there's still enough of a reason for you before you eat to just sit back and realize what it took for that food to get in front of you. And what it does is insidiously small thing starts to seep into every area of your life. This was central to the Jewish and to the Christian faith that came out of it, that, that we are not to lose sight of even the smallest little bite in our life. It's all a gift. It's all been given to us, that we're surrounded by life as a gift. In fact, there's one of my wife's favorite songs right now has this really poetic line that says that, Every breath is an invitation for appreciation. It's it's just such a beautiful line that every breath is an invitation for appreciation. That we should drink in the moments that we have, that everything that we have is an opportunity. It's a gift. The day that you have been given is a gift. You may think I'm cheesy. Go Go ahead and give you the cheesy thing. But on days it rains, I thank God for liquid sunshine. I thank God for the way that even as I drive somewhere, this is literally because I pray over my daughter every day when I drop her off at school. And on days that it rains and on days that it snows, one of the things that she hears comes out of my mouth is, God, thank you for the fact that there are so many things in this world we don't see and even notice. And yet the squirrels and the animals, the birds, the plants, they all They all receive right now the goodness of how you take. Like God is the perfect gardener. Because you talk to someone, some of you have friends or family who live in parts of the nation where they don't have rain falling regularly. And they live with a constant fear of evacuation or losing everything. Even rain, which may be uncomfortable at times, is a gift. And what happens is that posture starts to seep into every area of your life and you you start to become grateful and you start to realize that oh my goodness there is so much goodness in my life right now it's everywhere all around me i remember right after my daughter was born we were um she was going through this process and i've shared this with some of you before um you know when a baby is born they like stab them and prick them and 
you know, extract blood and run all these kinds of tests. And I remember they were doing that. And then we got a, a kind of a phone call from the doctor and they said, Hey, we want you to come in. Um, we need to redo a test. One of them came back negative. And so we're like, okay, you know, and so they come in, they stab my daughter's foot again. They suck the blood out the bottom of her heel and they're, you know, they send the test off and then it comes back and we get a phone call again. And they're like, Hey, um, we're going to need you to come in for some blood work. Like, what do you, what do you, what do you mean blood work? Well, you know, there's this, this, and this, and it's a bunch of fancy terms. And, but because my backdrop was biochemistry, I, I started looking through medical journals around these little fancy terms they threw at me. And I realized that they were casually inviting us to have blood work done on a specific chromosomal disorder that has three ways that it, it manifests itself. One, it kills the kid in the first year. One, it kills the kid in the first 10 years. Or one, it kills the kid before they're 20. And so here I, I have a two-week-old. And I'm realizing that they're trying to figure out if my daughter has something that is a death sentence. And then we have to go in and we have to physically hold her body because they draw an unholy amount of blood out of her little tiny arm. And we have to hold her down and she's screaming. And the entire time she's screaming, all I can think about is like, do I have less than 300 days with my daughter or do I have 3,000? How many days do I have with this little girl? And the week that I spent not knowing as they sent this blood work off to one of the top genetic labs in our nation because it needed to be very hyper-focused genetic test done on it. Like for a solid week, every single moment I held that girl, every breath she took was precious. Every single squeak she made was a gift. And that one of the best things that happened was not the phone call eventually that said, hey, um, we want to apologize. I don't understand. The, the level of false positives are so rare, but somehow you guys had multiple false positives in the process. And your daughter doesn't have this chromosomal disorder. But you know what? That wasn't the gift. That was not the greatest gift that week for me. The greatest gift was to put the phone down and realize that like, oh my goodness, my daughter isn't going to die in a, a year, 10 or 20 years. And then as quickly as I said that in an exhale, it hit me. She's going to die one day. And so am I too. And all of a sudden, I realized that what I had experienced that week was actually something I was meant to experience if I was living from a true posture of gratitude. Because what happens is that call, that warning against arrogance, it's not just the arrogance you don't like when you bump up against people. It's the type of arrogance you don't even realize you have. The arrogance that says, well, I'll talk to them next week because I'm going to take it for granted they're still going to be around. The type of arrogance that just flippantly plans for 40 years as if somehow we've been promised 40 years. It's an arrogance that none of us even realize we operate on or operate from. And one of the best things that ever happened to my relationship with that little girl who I love so deeply is the fact that I realized in her first few weeks of life that the reality is, is I was going to only be able to hold her for a limited time anyway. And that all I got in that first week, in the first two weeks of her life, was an estimated time frame for when we were going to be separated. And the reality is, is I don't know what that estimated time frame is, but it's still a time frame. 
and it's still a certainty. And the reality is, is every single person in your life has that same stamp attached to them too. When you start to realize that you wake up every single day and you, those people that are your biggest frustrations are also some of your greatest gifts. And that this week we call Thanksgiving isn't meant to be a holiday. It's meant to be every day. That the core of the Christian faith was a recognition and a realization that gratitude is to mark and is to be the central attitude of our entire life. That every single, the breath in our lungs, the sun that hits our face, every single day that comes on. And one of my mentors um, who passed away about seven years ago of cancer, um, he, he didn't call his alarm clock an alarm clock. He called it his opportunity clock. Because every day that it went off, it was his divine alert that he was given another opportunity to have another day. Because he realized, and he lived with a realization that none of us are promised tomorrow. And look, that's not a Hallmark card. That's life. Some of us this week are going to sit down at a Thanksgiving table, and there was, there's going to be an empty chair there. And last year, you just knew that the table would be full. And this year, you're going to have an empty chair. And the reality is there may be an empty chair next year, and it could be you. And it's not meant to make you feel down. It's not meant to make you feel depressed. It's meant to foster inside of you an appreciation for you to hold a little bit tighter every single person in your life, to be grateful for all those little tiny things, to avoid the ditch of the arrogance or the hope and money. And to realize that the best things that we have, we've been given, are often the things that we pass right on by and don't even see. And that every day, like that song says, every breath is an invitation for appreciation. And I pray that this year, this Thanksgiving, and even today, that you wouldn't walk by the things that are gifts to you. That you wouldn't skip over those divine blessings that are present in your life. Because all of them, all of them, including you, has a short window. And you should drink it in and enjoy it. Because God has richly provided it for you. And it's not to say that some of us don't have really bad things going on in your life. I know you do. You send us your prayer request and we pray for you. But I know that even in my darkest days, when days when I, I didn't even want to live anymore, there were still good things there. There were still gifts there that I could find and see if I looked for. And that there is a reason in every single season of life to be grateful. Regardless of how good or how dark those seasons are do not fall into the trap of believing that there is going to be a reason when you get to a different season because if you can't tune your heart to see the reason in this season you won't see it in the next one either and that paul is writing this word to timothy to call them to this place of appreciation to this place of humility and a gratitude posture Because the wealthy have even more reasons to be grateful. He doesn't condemn the wealthy in this passage. He's using them as an example because they even have more things to be grateful for. 
And that all of us, if we were to sit down and list all the things, it would overwhelm you. Because it is truly overwhelming what you have in your life. Even when you don't have some things in your life. I mean, the fact that I'm a pastor still blows me away. Almost uh, 17 years, 18 years after I became a Christian. Because every day I wake up, this is probably why you might think I'm cheesy. Um, this, isn't, this isn't a thing for me. This isn't what I wanted to do when I was growing up. I never imagined I would be a pastor. I'm, I'm an introvert. I don't, I don't like people. Don't tell anybody that. But like, I'm not a people person. I would have rather been in a lab doing research. But what transformed my life was in the middle of the darkest season I ever had. When I didn't want to live anymore. God's greatest gift broke into my life, and it's the word grace that comes through Jesus. It transformed me. The fact that the God of the universe, not just the one who richly provides everything in my life, but richly provided the one thing that I could not get in my life, which was hope and forgiveness. And that love that broke through my brokenness and transformed me from the inside out. And that I, I know that there are some of us in this room have experienced reasons in people that you would never want to be a Christian. But I'm telling you, the reason that I'm a Christian is not because of the hypocrites that I encountered when I wasn't one, but it's because of the one person who is the central name of our faith, Jesus Christ. His grace, his love, his mercy, his pursuit transformed me. And I can boldly say without having even part of your story... I can say he can transform you too. And this is the backdrop for why Paul can say the word command. He's like, look, I can command this because people who understand the God thing, the Jesus thing, they have no excuse for not practicing gratitude regularly. Because it, every day is an opportunity. And in fact, even in the last part of this verse, he even says that there's life that's truly life that's bigger than this life. And like, because Christians recognize that this is just the coming attraction. This is just the preview. There's a better thing on the other side. And that those people with that realization, with that confidence and that hope, they can walk in that. In 2002, Fred Rogers was doing a commencement at Dartmouth and he stepped up to the podium, and Fred Rogers is uh, the famed Mr. Rogers. Some of you uh, maybe grew up with him. You know, it's a lovely day in the neighborhood, a lovely day in the neighborhood, right? Um, like, Fred Rogers was just a central figure in my life growing up. And Fred Rogers is an extraordinary man. If you've never read anything about him, watched the documentary, a movie just came out over this weekend. But during his commencement address, at where he graduated from in Dartmouth, he stands up, and towards the middle portion of his commencement address, he, he turns, and he says these words. He says, um, and who are those who've helped you become the person you are? Anyone who has ever graduated from a college, anyone who's ever been able to sustain a good work, has had at least one person, and often many, who have believed in him or her. We don't just get to become competent human beings without a lot of different investments from others. I'd like to give you all an invisible gift, he said. A gift of a silent minute to think about those who've helped you become who you are today. 
Some of them may be here right now and some of them may be far away and some of them may not even be here at all anymore. But wherever they are, if they loved you, if they encouraged you and they wanted what was best in you for life, then that's the person I want you to think about. And I feel that on this special occasion, because it's a commencement, that we should devote some extra time just to reflect on them. <coughs> and then he had them do something that was perhaps slightly awkward. For a solid minute, he stopped talking. And he asked them to reflect. <coughs> and I was like, man, that's so moving. That's so in, in line with what Paul was saying to Timothy. I was like, maybe I, should, maybe I should ask people to do that this week. And then I was like, no, maybe I should just do what Mr. Rogers did. That before you leave, before I even finish this message, I want to give you a minute. Because what he said to them is true about you too. If you're here, <clears throat> you stand on the shoulders of some people who got you here. Maybe they're in your life, maybe they're not. Maybe they're the empty chair. Maybe they're the boss that believed in you or the professor that saw something in you or the teacher that saw something in you. But I've got a counter right here. And for the next minute, I want you to think about them. I want you to picture their face. I want you to remember some of the words that they said. I want you for a solid minute to reflect on those people, those persons who paved the way for you to become who you are. One minute. I recognize that maybe for some of us, that's slightly awkward. That for a minute, you just sat in silence. And I don't think that's so much an indictment or an indication about the minute I just gave you. I think it's more of an indictment about our culture and about the life and the pace that we live. And the reality of the very reason of why Paul wrote this words in the first place. Because it shouldn't be awkward to spend a minute reflecting on what you have been given and what you've been entrusted with and the people that changed your life. Like I'm deeply grateful for the people that bounced through my head. One, it was my mom. who was just an extraordinary woman who 
modeled so many things for me and believed in me. And another is the guy who I named my son after. I didn't pick either one of those. They both kind of picked me. And that feeling, I hope that you felt, that overwhelming sense of gratitude and appreciation, I hope it overwhelmed you for a second. I hope you lost sight of the minute that I'd give you. Because here's Paul's point in writing this. That feeling you just felt, that reason that you just had, God's desire would be that you would be that reason someone else would feel that too. That God's desire for your life not is just that you would sit and reflect, but that someone would sit and reflect deeply overwhelmed and grateful for you too. That that's a picture of a life that lives out positivity. Not the hype, not the kind of hallmark level positivity but a positivity rooted in a hope that reflects love in a way that shows it as a verb because it understands that the ultimate source is Jesus and what he modeled for us and that if you're maybe in this moment realizing you know what I don't have someone who would think about me this way then I want to invite you back next week on site or online for you to join us because next week as we kick off our December series I'm going to talk about how we can start to become a gift for people and how we can start to live out our life in the way that Paul unpacks for us in the next two verses. And so I look forward to seeing you here next week as we figure out, as we learn, and as we lean in to become the reason for someone else in their season of life to be grateful. In fact, next week, one of the things that we're going to do that we're going to kick off just to give you a heads up because I'm super pumped about it is... We, we're going to do um, our Love Does offering. We're going to kick it off. And as a church, generosity and compassion and love and serving is at the central focus of what we do because that's what God did for us. And um, as a church, you're incredibly generous. And sometimes your generosity is oriented on the inside like this earlier in the year where we went from $311,000 in debt to $47,000 in debt. And you did that in just 90 days. And it was amazing. And, and that's caused us to dream a little bit. Because, you see, on Giving Tuesday, December 3rd, um, when we're going to kick off our Love Does offering, um, Facebook has um, rolled out this matching offer that um, for up to $100,000 per organization, um, all the way to $7 million, first come, first serve. So organizations that get donations at 8 a.m. on Giving Tuesday on their Facebook page, um, those, they're going to just give it, they're going to match it until it gets to seven million, which is amazing. It's just leveraged giving. And on top of that, um, because we're on the back end of nonprofit stuff, um, when people use cards and they, they do giving, there's always a merchant fee that gets attached to it. So anything given to any nonprofit, just like you know something swiped at Target, um, you get 98% of it. Well, Facebook has removed the merchant fees that day. So 100% given on Giving Tuesday, will pass straight to the organizations. And um, so our Love Does offering is, is our outward focus. It's, 
It's the money that we raise, not for my salary, not for the lights, not for even the goldfish that some of your kids are eating, um, even though all those are good and noble things. It's the, the offering that's focused on what we do to engage our community, serve our community, do the events in our community, our compassion ministries. There are stories we can't tell you of families who through the year have been able to eat, who've been able to have rent, who've been able to have heat and air conditioning because of your generosity. And over the month of December, we're going to just celebrate what some of your generosity has done this year as we look towards what the Love Does offering will set us up for next year. And so for those who are like, oh, okay, this is exciting. Like we could leverage Facebook with this Love Does offering. So here's my thing. If you'd like to be a part of that, I recognize life can be frantic. And so I actually, um, this is a text messaging number I have. And so if you want to get a reminder on that morning, like a few minutes before, Giving Tuesday kicks off on Facebook. You're like, yes, I want to be a part of it. Then I just want you to text the word love to this number, 617-315-0315, 617-315-0315. That's not a short code. That's the actual text messaging number I have. Like, you text love, I'm going to put you in a group message, and I'm going to send you um, a reminder on that morning. And this is a way that we just want to kind of step in to say, hey, if you're interested, if, you, if you're not really interested, you're like, look, even I don't want to give no money to any church. That's fine. But if you want to step in with the Love Does offering, then we'd love to, to kind of help facilitate and us see Giving Tuesday be an amazing start because we want to be radically generous with our Love Does offering this year. And so we've been able to be generous before because of you. And we're like, man, let's let Facebook take it to a whole new level with us. And so um, this is going to be a great way. And next week, we'll, we'll unpack a lot of ways of how you and I can start to live as a reason for someone's gratitude in every season of our life. But I want to thank you for being here today and for your willingness to, to on the start of Thanksgiving week, to form and to, to have a posture of gratitude that finds a reason for gratitude in every season of life. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.